The title of this retreat is Awareness and the Art of Equanimity. And we chose awareness and equanimity because they are the foundation for an enduring sense of well-being in our life as we face the inevitable ups and downs, highs and lows, and challenges of navigating this life happily. And a recent uh, experience of mine uh, brought home to me just how valuable uh, this practice of awareness and the development of uh, equanimity or balance of mind is. We are creating a small Dharma sanctuary in Hermitage on Maui. And we have had a long running um, negotiation with the county over our, uh, the supply of water to our property. And for many years, we were trying to uh, complete a project that they requested us to do uh, in order to get the water that we need. And at one point in the process, things were at a stalemate and it didn't seem to be going in a direction that I liked. So I called for a meeting with the deputy director and I had a list of a whole agenda list of topics I wanted to discuss as to how we could resolve this impasse and the, uh, complete the project in a way that would both meet their needs and be affordable uh, by us. So I went through the, uh, I started off with the topics on my agenda and brought up the first topic and discussed it and the director consulted with his engineers and others in the department that were at the meeting and after a few minutes, he came back and said, no, that's uh, not going to be possible because of rule number X, Y, Z. Okay. Well, how about, and I brought up my second topic and presented my idea of how we could uh, meet their needs and still afford the project. And they had another discussion and they came back with another answer that was, no, that's not going to be possible for some other reason. And it went this way as I moved down through the list of topics on my agenda. And after we were partway through, the deputy director uh, looked at me and he said, in front of this room full of uh, half a dozen engineers and others, he said to me, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. No, I didn't need him to remind me. But with that, I saw my mind just scroll through all of the feelings and judgments of shame and embarrassment and indignation and wanting to say something back that I'd probably regret. And it was just a flood of 
pretty intense thoughts, feelings, uh, impulses, emotions. And I just sat there, probably stunned, watching this, which seemed to me to be for an hour or two, but it was probably, you know, 10 seconds. <laughs> and my mind just scrolled around until it arrived at an understanding that surprised me, but in retrospect was obvious. It just scrolled around until it arrived at the understanding, oh, this is the way it is here. And the corollary of that was, well, this can be dealt with without yet knowing just how I was going to deal with it. And I made some acknowledgement of the truth of what he said and went on with the next agenda item. Luckily, we finished the project. It's done. We afforded it. And, and we have our water and we're, we're moving on. But I have been reminded that uh, at that meeting, I probably could have uh, disastrously uh, reacted in a way that the project might not yet be done. I read a, uh, a little Chinese proverb in a, in, a, in a clinic I was in recently that said something like, a moment of patience can avert a disaster and a moment of impatience can ruin a life. And I think we all know that. And I think we all wish that we could consistently have the uh, clarity of mind and the stability of mind to deal with the inevitable uh, challenges that we face in life and to have the wherewithal to see reactions that are unskillful and to sidestep them and to put them aside with an understanding that's not just suppressing them or avoiding them or denying them, but really accommodating and being uh, adaptable to the conditions that, as they exist rather than how we want them to be. And we all uh, face similar situations in our life regularly if not daily. Things just don't go the way we'd always like. And so we are called upon to have uh, internal resources, really, to uh, navigate the terrain of life, really navigate the terrain of our mind, our heart, that uh, can create a mess. But when we learn to uh, how to be aware of the full range of, well, in this case, unpleasant thoughts, feelings, emotions, and to have a wise understanding of them. Such situations do not undermine the enduring sense of well-being that we can live life with. 
And this sense of well-being is uh, not dependent on conditions being pleasant. But it's not easy to, as you know, to uh, have that steadiness of mind, the clarity of mind, and the uh, non-reactivity of mind, if you will, to, to know how to do that, or to be able to do that. So tonight I want to speak about the tool of awareness, or how awareness helps us to develop this capacity in life. I'm going to use the word awareness and mindfulness synonymously in this talk. Sometime I'll be talking about mindfulness, sometimes I'll say awareness, and generally throughout this retreat we will use them synonymously. This awareness that we are developing here is very simply the ability to observe the present moment, to know the present moment as and when it arises. Now, that doesn't sound that difficult, but as you know from your practice today, while it may be simple and it may sound easy, it's very challenging to do. And we see why it's challenging or how it's challenging in that uh, we have habits of mind, of not being mindful. Habits of deeply conditioned habits of mind of being lost in fantasy and thought and planning and judging and creating us a heavily edited narrative of our life that fits. Often missing the present moment as it arises. So awareness or mindfulness is knowing the present moment as it arises. But it's knowing it uh, without what I'm going to call spin, without spin, without putting our flavor of approval or judgment or disapproval on it, and just seeing that this is the way it is and being able to endure both the feeling of the way it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and not ascribing um, significance and importance or value to it that's not there, that would somehow make it you know, more painful to ourself or more uh, embellishing of ourself. <clears throat> it's a way of being with the present moment that is both uh, subjectively in touch with it, so we're feeling the present moment, but we're also, or simultaneously, we're able to objectively recognize it. So we're not, we're not just lost in indulging in what in my situation, was a very unpleasant state of mind. Not lost in indulging in that, and neither are we lost in indulging in pleasant states of mind when they arise, but neither are we cut off from them. We're not distant from it, we're not denying it, we're not avoiding it. 
awareness or mindfulness is able to actually touch it. And when I say touch it, I mean to actually feel the present moment. So when we offer you the instruction in the sitting practice to, for example, attend to the breath so that when you breathe in, you feel the movements or sensations of the breath and while simultaneously knowing that this is the in-breath. So we're not indulging in the feelings or sensations and we're not just kind of coldly staring at them uh, objectively, but rather there's a balance between the two, feeling and knowing at the same time. Our teacher, Saito Upandita, an elderly Burmese monk now, says of mindfulness that a life without mindfulness is like food without salt. And salt enhances the flavor of everything that you put it on. The function of, of mindfulness is to remember. It's, it's not to remember the past, it's to remember this moment that there is this moment to be known. I didn't understand that when Saito Upandita first came here uh, to IMS in 1984. We were doing a, a three-month retreat. There were about 20 of us. And I was having a very difficult time with practice uh, then. And one day, as I was waiting for my chance to have an interview with him, I was waiting in the hallway upstairs outside room 101, and the, the, the woman who was reporting before me happened to be having a very good retreat, or she, her, her practice was really flourishing. And I heard her excitedly telling Saida about her, her, the clarity of her mind and how she was remembering past life experiences and just all the drama that was just, it was really fantastic for her. And I was standing down the hall thinking, where's the breath? <laughs> and so she came out and I walked in and I was pretty dispirited at the, by that point. And out of my, after doing my bows to Saida, out of, I guess, utter frustration and, and self-disappointment, I blurted out to him, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering past life experiences or something? <laughs> And he quite calmly looked at me and said, no, remembering this life. This life that's happening right now. And it's so obvious that that's, that's where it's really happening, right here, right now. Whatever happened in the past, as I mentioned earlier today, is gone. Whatever it was, no matter how horrendous or how traumatic or how glorious or how exalted you felt, it's over. It's just a memory that, that passes by. It's not happening now. When we remember it, that's what's happening now. That's what's to be remembered. Oh, this is what's being known. Remembering is being known. It's not easy to or it's not hard, I should say, to be present. 
and often students appreciate the, the sittings where we lead uh, or guide you or narrate you into your practice you know, for 10 or 15 minutes because if someone is guiding your attention, it's relatively easy to follow it, follow the instructions, do what they say, and, and clearly recognize moment after moment. But what's difficult is to remember it ourselves. To remember continuously when the microphone is turned off here, to remember in your own mind to, to, to be present, to recognize what is going on. When I say that awareness or, or mindfulness is to know the present moment, it's to know it without comment, to know it without spin. Now, that's not quite complete. Because the Buddha, in his teaching, after his awakening, what he was concerned with was, does this lead to suffering? Or does it lead to the end of suffering? Is this an experience of suffering? Or does this lead to suffering? Or is this the end of suffering? Or does this lead to the end of suffering? And that's the Buddha's lens, the lens through which the Buddha looks at all experience. And so, through the instruction, as we follow his guidance in doing this practice, it is the lens through which we view what seems to be our experience. Is this suffering or is it not? Does this lead to suffering or does it not? And so that is the, the kind of the, the parameter that we acknowledge our experience through. It's said that the proximate cause for awareness like this is a prior moment of mindfulness or awareness without answering the question of which came first or where did the first one come from. But what that points to is what every teacher I've worked with acknowledges over and over again. It is the continuity of your awareness that deepens the stability of mind and reveals the wisdom that unfolds from, from, from awareness. Now, when we come to a retreat, you know, we have a lot of hopes, we have a lot of expectations, we have a lot of uh, interest, we have a lot of um, energy, we have a lot of um, aspirations, maybe ambition, to be aware, to, to get what's being offered. And yet, try as we might, on day one, it's difficult to be satisfied with the result. It's just, you know, the mind just does not behave. You know, it's as if the mind has a mind of its own. You know, it's just, or as my teacher in Burma says, the mind is not yours, but 
you're responsible for it. <laughs> Whatever it's doing, you've got to take care of it, because if you don't, it'll make you really miserable. And yet, on the other hand, you can't always make it do, or very rarely actually, can make it do what you want it to do. And so we're left with this challenge of how to sustain our interest, how to sustain our energy, how to sustain our faith, and to keep making the effort in order to develop the momentum or the continuity of awareness to where we can actually see it. We can actually see that it's, it's carrying us along rather than we're trying to uh, arouse it moment to moment. And it takes, you know, to be honest with you, for most of us when we come to retreat, it takes a few days. So it was an interesting, uh, a friend of mine when he was first practicing, and this was many years ago when I was on staff here, he came and he said, okay, came to a three-month course, and he said, this time I'm really going to try really hard, really continuous, right from the get-go. And it still took him three days. The next time he came, he said, hey, I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to chill. Knowing that it takes three days, I'm just going to you know, do my best. And it still took three days. Well, which would you rather, <laughs> which would you rather do? Struggle and suffer and push and and have it take three days, or just, well, relax, do the best you can, and know that in three days, you'll be at the same place. It takes, it takes experience before we know that, before we have the confidence and, and maybe the skill how to practice in a uh, diligent way without struggling. But let me encourage you to, to experiment with how you can sustain awareness throughout the activities of the day without struggling with your experience. Just, just trying to be aware, trying to be present, trying to recognize what the present moment's experience is, whether you're sitting or walking or doing your yogi job or going to the toilet or dressing or bathing or whatever it is. It is the continuity, not only in the sitting practice, but throughout all your waking hours, from the time you wake up, whatever you do, until you fall asleep. And if we're willing to make that effort, which is not that much in any one moment, but continuously seems so difficult, if we're willing to make that effort, well, in three days you'll see the result. Or let's say, the momentum will be apparent. <clears throat> so the continuity or prior moment of mindfulness is approximate cause for mindfulness. There's a second element or second condition for arousing awareness and for sustaining awareness. And it's called clear perception. Clear perception is the ability to recognize what your experience is. To recognize it. To know that when you're breathing in, oh, this is breathing in. When you're hearing a sound, oh, this is hearing a sound. When you're taking a step, oh, this is stepping. It seems so easy. 
It's not that difficult. And yet, as you know, it's very difficult to do with any continuity. So we have a tool to help you develop clear perception, and that is labeling. When you're able to make the effort, when you're willing to make the effort to name your experience, it takes effort, I know. It seems like an additional activity of mind to find the name, to, to, to look through your meditator's you know, dictionary or you know, list of things to be experienced on retreat and find it and name it. But it is such a valuable tool for arousing this clear perception, which is the cause of the continuity of awareness. It's worth making that effort. I was reading about some research that uh, a UCLA psychologist, Matthew Lieberman, did with meditators. And he, was ha he put meditators through you know, these uh, machines that measure your brain. And he found that when meditators name their experience, whatever it is that they're experiencing, while going through that machine, their brain patterns or their brain activity is very different than when other people, non-meditators, are experiencing the same thing, but not noticing, or we should say, not clearly recognizing what it is. It said that by naming your experience, you begin to mm, step back from it. Rather than indulging in it, rather than denying it or avoiding it, you step back from it, but still are aware of it. This is the path of mindfulness. To be aware of, but not indulging in, nor cut off from what's happening. Mindfulness asks and answers the question, what? rather than the question, why? But our conditioning for many of us in our education and in our uh, navigating life is to try to understand why things are happening the way they are. And it leads to a lot of explaining, a lot of figuring out, a lot of analyzing, a lot of uh, comparing and evaluating. And this is not the direction of insight. It leads to some understanding. It leads to understanding through thinking. But mindfulness aims for understanding from direct experience. And so we ask the question, what? Meaning, what is this that is being known now? What is this that's being known now? And the answer is, whatever you see. But what is it that we see? What is it that we experience when we pay attention to moment-to-moment -moment experience? We see the body, we see the mind, we see the environment. Did you see anything else today? Really? 
If you took a catalog or made a catalog of all that you experienced today, there would be a catalog of pleasant and unpleasant, gross or subtle, familiar or novel physical experiences. And there would be an addendum to that, gross or subtle, familiar or novel, pleasant or unpleasant, mental experiences. Some of them conditioned by the environment. Anything else? Well, when it gets to be that limited a field of stuff, you'd think it would be easy to just uh, create the matrix. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Is it physical or mental? And, and just check the box. Well, that is a simple way of, of, of looking at your experience. But what makes it so difficult is that we interpret everything that we experience as having something to do with me. The Buddha said that this view, this way of understanding our experience is an unskillful way of understanding experience. When we assign ownership or identification to all of our physical and mental experience. Now, I gotta admit, it certainly seemed like me. These thoughts that I noticed today, they seem like they're my thoughts. These sensations that I felt in the body seem like my body. And I'm sure it's the same for you. Due to our conditioning, our family conditioning, our cultural conditioning, our social conditioning, our psychological conditioning, maybe even our metaphysical conditioning, that's what we believe. But the Buddha said, that belief, while it appears true, can only lead to suffering. But if you hear another view and you pay attention with uh, precise and careful attention, you may come to believe that things are otherwise. This view that the Buddha offered, we'll call it right view or we'll call it skillful view, is necessary to hear. The Buddha said there are two conditions for the arising of right view in our minds. And one condition is we have to hear what the right view is from someone else. Well, who'd the Buddha hear it from? Well, that's what a Buddha does. A Buddha observes and understands through his own power of mind what the right view is, the view that leads to the end of suffering or the skillful view of understanding body and mind. But if we have the opportunity, as we do, to hear it from a Buddha, save yourself a few hundred lifetimes. <laughs> hear the view from the Buddha, that's the first condition. And the second is to practice with a skillful attention, meaning observe your experience with skillful attention.
not to um, not to force this view on your experience, but to let this view be in the background, so that as you observe your experience, when confirming experience arises, you will then understand for yourself. Oh, this is the skillful way of understanding this experience of the body, this experience of the mind. So what do we see? Well, we see physical experiences. If we can understand that what we feel in the body is, well, this is the nature of the body. It, it is the nature of the body. Whatever you experience today is not wrong. It's just the nature of the body to feel achy, to feel hot, to feel tense, to feel sleepy, to feel whatever you felt today, hungry, full, bloated, empty, hollow, large, small, heavy, light, whatever it is you felt, it's not wrong. That's the nature of the body. But often, as you know, our conditioning is to judge all of those experiences as pleasant or unpleasant, I like this one, I don't like that one, I gotta fix this one, I want more of that. And in doing that, we create a whole narrative, a whole story about our life that is filled with disappointment, frustration, sadness, pain, uh, judgment, suffering of one sort or another. When we can understand, oh, this is the nature of the body. This is, this is what happens to a human body due to causes and conditions, well, outside of our control. If we could control the experiences of the body, we would say, okay, body, be pleasant, subtle, and light all day. <laughs> you can say that all you want. <laughs> and it doesn't happen because, well, just as the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it, so too the body is not yours but you're responsible for it. Whatever the body's experiencing, we have to learn how to accommodate, learn how to acknowledge, learn how to understand it in a way that leads to, well, less suffering on the way to no suffering. We also observe the mind. Everything that you observed in your mind today, irritation, Frustration, clarity, awareness, dullness, wandering mind, delusion, confusion, frustration, anxiety, despair, panic. What? Anything else? Well, this is all normal. This is normal human mind experience. Nothing wrong with any of it not to be judged as good or bad, me or mine, better or worse. But when it can be seen as, oh, this is the nature of the mind. This is, this is natural activity of mind. This is what the mind does. If you put the mind in this situation, this is what's going to happen. This is what's a natural result of causes and conditions giving rise to this effect. How could it be otherwise? You know, when the sun comes out and you stand in the sun, the body gets hot and begins to sweat. We accept that, right? 
I mean, that, that's what happens. Well, when you come into a quiet room and you sit down and you're quiet and you close your eyes, the body and the mind fall asleep, right? I mean, that's natural, that's our conditioning. When it's quiet and your eyes are closed, when else do you try to stay awake? So it's natural if you were struggling with, well, if you were experiencing sleepiness today, it's only natural. Don't struggle with it. Just recognize, oh, this is the way it is. Given these conditions, this is the experience. It can't be otherwise. When we struggle with our experience, we're somehow trying to deny the lawful nature of the body, the lawful nature of the mind, the not lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. You lose every time. Nature wins every time. This is the way it is. When you struggle against nature, how can you be happy? And so the practice asks us to recognize, oh, this is, this is the way it is. This is the way it is in the body right now. This is the way it is in the mind right now. Can we accept that? Can we open to that? Can we just understand, oh, this is the nature of the body. This is the nature of the mind. We don't need to fix it. Don't need to explain it. Don't need to get rid of it. Don't need to indulge it. Don't need to hold on to it. It's just, this is the way it is for now. And as we know, nothing lasts very long. What a relief. The natural activity of the mind is thinking. Did you struggle with your thinking today? Did you struggle with your wandering mind today? Did you have thoughts that you didn't like to have today? Did you ask yourself, where do these thoughts come from? I have the answer. They come from the person behind you. <laughs> so you're off the hook. Just don't turn around and look at them. <laughs> thoughts happen. If we make thoughts the enemy of our practice, who suffers? Don't make thoughts the enemy. Understand, this is what the mind does. This is a natural activity of mind. Learn to recognize when the mind is thinking. Learn to recognize when the mind is feeling pleasant. Learn to recognize when the mind is feeling unpleasant. Because these are natural activities. These are uh, results of causes and conditions outside of our control. When we really understand that what we're observing in our practice is the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, the unfolding of causes and conditions, lawful causes and conditions, we can stop struggling and just accept this is the way it is for now. It will require that we learn to endure unpleasantness. But you know, as much as we struggle to avoid unpleasantness, it happens anyway. We can, we can come in and sculpt the most exotic, refined nest to hold our knees in a certain place and our back in a certain way and to cover it and just, just exactly right. And it still doesn't work. Unpleasantness comes. We should just say, oh, to heck with it. 
I'll deal with it when it comes, because it's going to. But that takes an adjustment to our attitude of mind, a willingness to willfully, intentionally, uh, openly experience unpleasantness, rather than resisting it, avoiding it, judging it, trying to fix it, trying to get rid of it. Just say, this is the way it is. It too is impermanent. Unpleasantness is impermanent. So, if it's bound to happen due to causes and conditions outside of our control, relax. Relax. This is an important piece in our practice, both to relax the body and to relax the mind. Now, when I say to relax the body, we all know what to do. If I said, okay, relax. Okay, we just, we kind of scope out inside where there were, there's some holding or some tension and let go and just settle down on our sitting bones a little more stably. If I say, okay, now relax your mind, what do you do? <laughs> you know, you kind of you go in your mind and do something and try to relax your mind. Relaxing our body, we're familiar with. Relaxing our mind means let go of any agenda, any project, any objective that you're carrying into your practice. Because we do. As much as we hear that awareness practice is to be there for the moment as it arises, and to recognize it, and to endure it for as long as it lasts, subtly and fairly continuously, there are attitudes, projects, and agendas that attach themselves to our effort. For example, We have a very um, refined critic or judge in our mind. And it can, well, you know, when you go through the lunch line and you see the bowl of fruit uh, at breakfast at the end of the table, it does a quick scan and says, that's an orange, that's a banana. And there's a, there's a preference arises in the mind. Okay, I'll take the banana. And not only is it satisfied with recognizing the distinction between orange and banana, it looks at all the bananas and said, and says, this one's best, and it goes for that one. Did, have you seen your mind do that? <laughs> if it was only bananas and oranges, not bad. But it's everything else that goes through our mind, too. Every person we see, every behavior we see, every meditative experience we have. There's this constant evaluating, weighing, measuring, comparing, looking at, this is good, this is better, this is best. The mind does this. We don't even have to tell it to do that. It does it automatically. This is a natural function, a natural capacity of the mind. But to try to stop it is impossible. Well, 
To try is not impossible. To try is a struggle. But it's not possible to stop the mind from making those, from noticing those distinctions. Our task is not getting caught in them, not getting caught in attachment to them or aversion to what the mind is seeing. Because the mind will see. As we develop this awareness, already today, you, you, you see more at the end of the day than you saw at the beginning. And gradually, as the days go on, you'll see more and more details of how the mind is working, coming to understand with more refined and continuous awareness, this is what the mind does. If we like and dislike what we see, we won't be happy. But if we understand, oh, this is the way it is, this is the nature of mind, this is the natural function of mind, recognizing that the mind may prefer or disprove, disapprove of something, we don't need to get caught in it. When we get entangled in the judgments of the mind, then we really suffer. If we see the judgments of the mind as judgments of the mind, they come, they go, there's not a problem. Sometimes we demand performance from our effort. You know, we come in, we sit down, and we say, okay, I'm going to be really continuous, as continuous as I can be, being aware. And then we expect it to happen. As Saido Tejaniya, uh, another Burmese monk that Kamala uh, and I have been working with lately, he says, um, don't try to avoid objects or experiences. Try to avoid getting entangled in the defilements. And he says that yogis uh, make the mistake of expecting or hoping for good experience rather than being willing and trying to work with the defilements. We recognize that. We all prefer pleasant experience. I know some of you are experienced and have come to retreats before, but even with prior experience, it's difficult to come to retreat planning on working with the defilements. Inevitably, we come hoping for the best. It'll come later in the retreat. <clears throat> Wrong effort, or I should say, effort is necessary in practice. We need to make an effort. If we don't make any effort, nothing happens. The same old habits of mind will appear whenever they wish, pulling us into states of entanglement and disappointment and frustration and, and very unpleasant mental states. So we know that we have to make an effort. But more effort in practice does not always lead to more insight. After I'd been practicing here in, in, in the States for a few years, I decided to go to Burma to ordain and practice this meditation until I was satisfied that I knew what it was all about, or at least what something was. At least I knew more about it. So I went to Burma, and I went to practice with uh, Saito Upandita. And in the monastery where he was the abbot, uh, they allow you four hours of sleep at night. That's the, on day one. 
up to four hours. He said, you can sleep all you want, up to four hours. And the rest of the time was you know, 20 hours of uh, sitting and walking practice. And the day was divided into hour-long sittings and hour-long walkings, and there was a couple of small short meals in the middle of the day, and there was an opportunity to report to Sayadaw um, each day for uh, a few minutes. So I got going, and you know it was it was a little bit of a struggle to to, to get by with four hours of sleep the first few weeks. But in time, I got used to it and was doing my practice. And then an hour-long sitting, while on the first day was pretty challenging, by the middle of the week or a week later, it was not so difficult. And so I figured, well, hey, if one hour sitting is good, more is better, right? Doesn't that seem reasonable? So I started sitting longer. And I would sit for an hour and a half, I'd sit for two hours, I'd sit for two and a half hours. And while I was learning how to sit that long, I would go in to report to Saido every day with these exquisite details of excruciating pain, which is to be expected. You know, if you sit still for a long period of time, it's going to be painful. So I was sitting three hours, four hours, and I was going in, and after a couple of weeks, I was going in, and every day I was telling Sayadaw Bindita about the, the clarity with which I was observing these pixels of just excruciating pain. <laughs> Thinking, more is better. One day he said to me, you know why you have so much pain? I was all ears, like, okay, I'm ready for the secret teaching on pain. Give it to me. He says, you sit too long. <laughs> I had mistaken my efforting for insight. I, of course, I had a lot of exquisite details, but no understanding. No understanding of why or where the pain was coming from. He said, don't sit more than an hour. So I didn't thereafter. Of course, it was still got painful at times, but not like that. Watch in your own practice. Be careful about how you apply your energy. Because, yes, we need effort. But just for a moment, just for this moment, feel the sensations in your right hand. Wherever your hand is, whatever it's doing, can you feel those sensations in your hand? Feel throbbing, pulsing, warmth, tingling, something? Yeah? How much effort did that take? Not much, was it? Really? It didn't take, well, almost nothing. It just took the mental energy to direct your attention skillfully to pay attention to that. It's mental energy that we need in mindfulness practice, in insight practice. It's the energy of the mind. It's not the energy of the body. It's not struggling with anything. It's just skillfully turning your mind's attention to the present moment. And, and as we just saw, it doesn't take that much energy. It doesn't take that much effort. You don't need to hunch your shoulders, fur your brow, grit your teeth, clench your fists, you can be completely relaxed. 
moment after moment, completely relaxed, just noticing what calls your attention. Be careful how we, how you apply your effort. What is it that you're expecting? Is there any expectation? Is there any anticipation? Is there any attempt to avoid some experience? Or is there an attempt, are you trying to create some experience? These are all agendas that attach themselves to our effort, making it wrong effort. Right effort is to relax, to wait, to notice what calls your attention, and then recognize it. Right effort. More than that, maybe struggling. Maybe using wrong effort. Some agenda, as I said, may have attached itself to your, to your practice. Someone asked earlier today whether there was some uh, uh, goal that we had to have in mind or some uh, task or some, some, something that we should assign our mind to do while we're doing our practice. And I said, no, we don't really need to, to have anything other than to be present for and recognize the moment as it arises. But the Buddha was clear that even if you do that, there is a greater purpose being served. We don't need to have that as our motivation. We don't need to think of it kind of continuously, but gradually we purify our mind of greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, ambition, self-pity, a sense of entitlement, a sense of being victimized. And as we gradually purify our mind of these deeply conditioned habits, we begin to see more clearly. And in this clear seeing, we come to know the way things are. When we know the way things are, we have a choice. We can learn to live and choose to live in alignment with them and stop suffering. Or through delusion, we can struggle with the way things are and suffer. It's a choice we have as we purify our mind, as we begin to see more clearly, it's a choice. But it's through this effort of being mindful, being aware, moment by moment, gradually seeing our reactivity of mind, seeing the uh, attachments to our effort and letting them go. It's through this that we begin to see more clearly, understand things more deeply, and gradually disentangle the mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. This is the greater good. This is the, uh, the outside goal, if you will, of our efforts. It will happen if you make the effort, if you understand the view and you attend to the present moment skillfully, this is the result. Greater understanding. As Saito Tejaniya says, 
Don't try to avoid objects or experiences. Try to avoid getting entangled in the defilements. It's not you who removes the defilements. It's wisdom that does the job. So let's sit for a moment, let the words settle down. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you'll naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. for listening to the Dhamma. It's about 8.30 and there's another sitting scheduled for uh, 9.15. So I know some of you have uh, some kitchen jobs, I think, now. And the rest of you can uh, mill about mindfully, <laughs> whether it's outside or inside. But I invite you to come back for the 9.15 sitting. It will be a short sitting tonight. Uh, I know for many of you, uh, at this point of the day, on the first day of a retreat, we have had enough. <laughs> but it's only 8.30. <laughs> if you were home, would you head off to bed now? No. Okay. So, um, as an inducement to... to uh, to get you back here. We will be learning the loving-kindness chant. So it's on the back side of the refuges and precepts. So if you wish to learn the loving-kindness practice in chant form, then you can come to rehearsal tonight at 9.15. And it will be a short sitting tonight so that we can all manage to uh, endure it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.